Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm joined this week by Shane Pata, who is the founder and CEO of Harvard MedTech. So Shane, welcome to the podcast. Really uh, happy to have you here and talk about what you're working on. Hi, Maxwell. Thank you very much for having me on, and I uh, I really appreciate it and look forward to sharing our story. Excellent. So maybe give a little bit of background on yourself. You know, I know you're, you're a serial entrepreneur. This isn't your first rodeo. So maybe give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got involved uh, in Harvard MedTech. Yeah. So depending on how far back we want to go, I uh, studied uh, uh, biology, uh, neurobiology, actually in college at Harvard. And um, I started my first company right out of school. So it was, uh, and it was serendipitous. It wasn't a planned uh, uh, exercise. Um, so I've been a, a, a serial entrepreneur my uh, entire career. And in that journey, I've uh, been lucky enough to have started, scaled, and then sold five businesses. Uh, uh, three of them were in healthcare, two were not. One uh, was a consumer products company, one was a software company. And then in the healthcare space, um, one, uh, one was, uh, two of them were medical devices and one was the tech-enabled services model. Um, and healthcare is, is really where I've focused the last uh, 25 years of my career. It's the space I love the most. It's a uh, big industry. It's uh, not optimally structured in a lot of ways. So that creates uh, opportunities for entrepreneurs. And it's also... Um, a very meaningful uh, way to make a difference because you, you're you have the privilege of helping people with their health. You know what could be more important to someone. So it's a space that I, I really enjoy. Sure, absolutely. No, I think that's a critical point. You know, it's it's a ripe for innovation for opportunities to. You know, that's what entrepreneurs do at the end of the day. Is, is you know I don't have to tell you is, is solve problems. And I think there's you know unfortunately there's a lot of problems in healthcare, but like you said that that creates a lot of opportunities as well. So I'm I'm curious for Harvard MedTech, what 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 was the inspiration to start that company? What you know, what kind of clinical need did you got you and your team see, and and what's the technology you guys are trying to develop to to solve that? Great question. I I think that in order to to understand my motivation, let me just share that you know over the course of my career, as I've uh, progressed, I've had the luxury of being able to choose um, more than I did early in my career uh, in uh, what companies I want to get involved with. Uh, and at this point in my career, I tend to be very mission-driven. I'm a capitalist, uh, but I want to work on ideas that are going to be meaningful, and they'll have a positive impact uh, on uh, the populations or the markets that we serve. I had sold my last company, uh, and I thought I was retired. 
And uh, I uh, uh, was in that state for about a year. And, and there's a second time I tried to retire and I'm just not wired that way. And uh, pretty soon I was climbing the walls. I, I was trying to figure out well, what's, the, what's the next big challenge in healthcare that we can um, uh, try to help address. And the obvious tall uh, pole in the tent was a whole opioid epidemic. Different entrepreneurs operate in different ways. Some entrepreneurs come up with abstract thoughts or ideas and then assume that the market will come. And Steve uh, Jobs was a master at that. Um, other entrepreneurs like myself tend to be a little bit more linear in that I need to see a problem and then try to find a solution to it. And so in this case, the problem was the opioid epidemic in the country. And um, as I uh, looked at, uh, you know, why do we have an opiate epidemic? Um, you know, what caused it, what's going on? It really led me down a path of where I realized that our current strategy for managing pain, especially chronic pain, was not really the optimal approach. And opioids were a symptom of a misguided approach to treat chronic pain. Turns out that opioids are really a masking agent, just like alcohol or medical marijuana. And I'm not being judgmental, but my point is that they numb a person so they don't feel the pain, but they don't do anything to address the underlying issues that are causing uh, the chronic pain. And it, was on the, it, and it was on that journey to solve the opioid epidemic problem that, that uh, uh, I came up with the idea for Harvard MedTech and put together the company and took it to market. I think that's so critical what you had you hit on with the chronic pain patients is that you know especially like with the opioid epidemic it numbs the pain but it does you know it's temporary it doesn't get at the heart of the problem and in fact in my in my field of interventional radiology we are you know that's it's a evolving field where we do a lot of interventional pain procedures now and where we try to really get at the at the heart of those those um you know those pain generators but even still with that as we'll, as I'm sure we'll get into there, it's much more complicated than just, you know, targeting the nerve that may be causing the pain, you know, the brains involved, you know, pain is a very complex, as you, as you know, and we'll talk about, uh, is a very complex pathology, you know, uh, pathology that, that has to be dealt with in, in multiple different areas. So I'm curious, you know, what, maybe give us a little bit like a 30,000 overview, uh, of the technology, like what it exactly your, you know, what it is, what, what how it works and all that. And then we'll kind of get into more of the, the details of how you guys are working on it. A great question, Maxwell. In terms of understanding how the program works and why we put it together the way we did, I think it's helpful to share what I view as the landscape of chronic pain. There's a certain percentage of the patients, you know, let's say about 25%, that you can identify a structural, structural underlying issue that you can uh, address and fix, whether it's by addressing a a nerve that's not uh, uh, functioning optimally, or whether there's other issues like osteoarthritis, where there's degeneration going on. So th there's actually physical things that you can uh, identify that are causing chronic pain. However, the uh, vast majority of chronic pain patients, the other 75%, actually have chronic pain that has nothing to do with anything physical that's going on in terms of injuries or, or um, uh, challenging um, structural issues uh, within their body. Those patients uh, suffer from either one of two challenges. Uh, the biggest bucket is, and, and, and to your point, 
you know, pain is a very complex uh, process and there's many different parts of the brain that are involved. It's not a linear thing that, okay, there's one thing if we can turn it off then all of a sudden the patient's not uh, having pain. Um, and without getting into a deep dive into a brain morphology and how the different parts of the brain work together and, and, and how they impact pain, let's just kind of look at it at a higher level and say that about half of the chronic pain patients suffer from what I term emotion, call emotional pain. That is where some sort of a traumatic incident has happened that was uh, so jarring that the patient, that that got uh, burned into or stored into the emotional center of the brain. Once that's happened, it takes on a life of its own. And even after the initial injury, whatever it may have been, has long gone or, be, or healed, the patient continues to feel pain. The poster child of that is phantom limb syndrome, for example, where somebody, let's say I, I had an amputation, lost my right arm, uh, I'm still feeling pain in that arm. We know that can't possibly be. And that's, that's the perfect example of, um, of uh, 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 emotional pain. Um, and the other big bucket, which is about 25 to 30% of the patients um, are deemed too sensitive to pain or, or um, you know, similar um, uh, uh, labels. And really what's going on with those patients is their thalamus, which is a part of the brain that sits on top of the spinal cord that, that uh, monitors and processes signals coming from other parts of the body and then passes it off to different parts of the brain, uh, depending on, on what the signals are and what needs to happen. For those patients, um, the thalamus is uh, not uh, functioning optimally. It's almost like that, th that thalamus is uh, hyperactive, if you will, where it's measuring for pain signals um, much, much more frequently. And normally pain signals that would have been a low intensity pain signal that it would have not triggered a, a thought for the patient. Uh, now the patient thinks, okay, this is it. This, um, I actually have pain. And so between those two issues, that's really about 75% of the people who have chronic pain. In order to help them, we had to come up with a solution that would uh, help both the thalamus issue in terms of how do you retrain that part of the brain so that it can operate more optimally, along with a solution for emotional pain, where really what you need are behavioral health interventions that will help the patient process uh, and then get beyond whatever incident is causing that. Uh, you know, and oftentimes the term around that is, is exposure therapy, but um, uh, as a simplistic term. So in, as I was looking at it, um, you know, the VR is an amazingly powerful tool because it is so immersive. So when a patient puts on a VR headset with the right kind of programming, they're so absorbed in into what is happening in the VR headset that the distraction principle kicks in. When that happens, automatically that patient's brain will deprioritize secondary signals such as hunger, need to go to the bathroom, and pain. That, that patient in effect is more pain resilient, if you will. And what we found is that VR uh, is an amazingly powerful analgesic because of the uh, distraction effect, our uh, uh, effect. Uh, it gives about 50% analgesic benefit, which is the same as you would get by taking an opioid, except that it happens uh, within four or five minutes of putting on the headset, as opposed to having to wait for 45 minutes or longer 
for the opioid to kick in. So it's just as powerful from a pain relief perspective as an opioid or a narcotic would be, and yet you don't have any of the addiction issues. What's also interesting is that even after the patient takes off the headset, because we have, through that experience, put that patient into a hyper-focused state uh, to, in order to achieve that distraction effect, it takes a certain period of time for them to return back to normalcy. And that tends to be about an hour, uh, plus or minus half an hour. So the patient feels that 50% pain relief while they have the VR headset on, as well as for an hour or, or longer uh, after they take it off. What's even more fascinating is that if you repeatedly expose that patient to that VR therapy for 90 days, um, another concept in neurobiology, neuroplasticity kicks in where the patient's brain says, okay, I'm constantly being exposed to this. This is something that I want to be able to recreate or give Maxwell the ability to recreate uh, when he wants to, because he must he, he must want to uh, he, he must want to have this capability because it's constantly happening. And what happens is that after uh, roughly about 90 days, that patient is able to get to that same distracted state where they are deprioritizing secondary signals uh, without the need of a VR headset. They don't no longer need the tool because they've mastered that ability. Sort of a good analogy is uh, meditation. It takes a long time to become really good at meditation, but once you do, um, you then have the ability to focus or be in the moment and ignore secondary distractions. Um, so VR seemed like a great way for solving the problem uh, for the patients. You know, in effect, long-term, what we're really doing is making patients more pain resilient um, so that they can ignore the signals or tolerate the signals without the need to take a narcotic and without impairing their ability to have a normal life. For the other uh, parts uh, of uh, the population, the 50% are suffering from emotional pain. They needed to have behavioral health interventions uh, to pro to to... Uh, process whatever happened and then get beyond that. Um, what's interesting though is that you know a lot of people put behavioral health into a one-size-fits-all box. Uh, it's not just like physical medicine is not. You know if you have cancer you should go see an oncologist. If you have issues with your with your eyes you should go see an ophthalmologist. Um, and likewise, there's seven different major therapy styles in behavioral health. CBT is one everyone knows and talks about. If a patient is already opioid dependent, ACT, for example, is a more effective therapy, uh, mindfulness, um, motivational interviewing, counter conditioning. So depending on the patient, um, uh, uh, one of the therapies or a combination of the therapies is gonna be more effective for them and what issues they're facing. Um, so we decided, okay, how do we combine uh, the two? And we put together a program, it's a 90-day program. So the way it works is a patient goes to their doctor and says that I'm in pain, uh, something has happened. Uh, and generally that would be an orthopedic surgeon or interventional pain specialist. And the uh, physician would tell them that, okay, to help you manage your pain, you have to, uh, there's two choices. One is the usual care of opioids and nerve blocks and that sort of thing. Or I have a digital health solution for you, Harvard MedTech's program. If the patient picks our program, the doctor writes a script. Within 48 hours, we uh, FedEx a, a, our, uh, our headset to the patient's home, wherever they are in the country. We have an onboarding call for that patient. Uh, and on that onboarding call, 
we do a number of things. We um, uh, explain the program to them. We get them excited about the program. We teach them how to use the VR headset. And that's really important. The VR headset has about 11 hours of programming, 93 different segments or experiences. And depending on what the patient's needs are, how the sequencing and how they use those, those different experiences uh, is materially important. And the other thing we do is we, at that time, we do a, uh, we build a, a phenotype for that patient. Um, you know, what are the, what's the patient's biopsychosocial uh, construct? What issues are, are, are impairing that patient? What type of a, of a behavioral health phenotype do they have? So what therapy style are they going to respond to better? So after we've done all those things, we'll assign a, uh, one of our uh, 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 master's level behavioral health clinicians if the patient then starts the program, they use a VR headset every day for the 90 days. In addition to that, at least once a week, they have an hour, hour long call with uh, that clinician where we're monitoring the patient's progress as well as we're interacting with the patient and helping them um, process, you know, you, you can call it a behavioral health intervention or, or a therapeutic um, interaction uh, where we're helping the patient with all their behavioral health issues. And that happens uh, over 90 days. And then after that, you know, the patient um, uh, is, graduates and is in a better place. That's really cool. I think a lot of things, I mean, one is the whole VR, you know, I think VR is almost a, te a technology in some ways that was a little bit ahead of its time. And I think it was kind of like, we have this cool tool, but how do we use it? And I think, I mean, you found an excellent way to find, to use this. I mean, it just, you know, it's, it's almost like a natural fit, you know, to help with using visual inputs to help, you know, reprogram and, and treat people with comp really complex, you know, mental health and, and, you know, chronic pain and things like that. So I think it, it just makes so much sense. And I think it's really cool. I'm, I'm curious, you know, in the end user stage, like how would this be something that, that a physician would, you know, prescribe to their patient? And then, you know, it sounds like you've built in systems for them to follow with that patient, which I think is, is critical, mm -hmm. like you said. So yeah. I guess I'm curious. And then, on top of that, the like the reimbursement standpoint, like, do you see insurance companies covering this uh, as part of that, or I guess where where have you thought about that as well? Yes, so so we're actually um, um, beyond that, Maxwell. We are generating revenue. Uh, uh, we have been growing at about two hundred uh, percent a year, uh, three hundred percent a year. We uh, our our service is covered by insurance, so the insurance company who uh, is the one who pays for it. The, you know, we, we have to we have a number of partners that we work with. Obviously, the patient that we serve, the physician who prescribes the, the product, it does require a prescription from the physician in order for the insurance company to cover uh, cover the. Uh, the uh, cost, but then we also obviously work with the insurance company. And one of the big concepts that I've always believed in is continuity of care and care coordination. Uh, and one of the big problems in our healthcare system is oftentimes when a patient is seeing a number of different healthcare providers, there's not there's a lack of communication between the providers, so that there's no sort of quarterback who understands everything that's happening to their patients. So. In order to, to help um, uh, ameliorate that, uh, the weekly behavioral health sessions that the patient en engages in, those notes, clinical notes, are sent to the prescribing physician so they know everything that's happening with their patient week after week. We also send the notes to the <clears throat> adjuster from the insurance company and the nurse case manager who's working on behalf of the insurance company 
to help the patient uh, get better. So it's, 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 a, it's a way to uh, um, make sure that everyone is involved and everyone is collaborating to help that patient get better uh, quickly. That's awesome. That's just amazing. I'm curious, you know, what, what regulatory pathway did you guys have to go down uh, for this? Is that, and I guess what were some of maybe some of the hurdles you had to, to overcome with that? It's a medical device. And so we had to get, go through the FDA process, which we uh, successfully did. Although that's usually a, a really challenging uh, uh, part of the process of bringing a new product to market. Uh, you know, having done this before, but like I mentioned this is my third rodeo as far as medical device companies go. So um, not that I'm any smarter than anyone else, but if you do the same thing three times, you tend to, to learn how, how to do it more effectively. And so we went through the, uh, so we, we, we did go through the FDA process. The harder struggle actually was in, around getting insurance reimbursement. The regulatory piece was, was, was there. You know, in, in healthcare, if you're going to bring a, a, a product to market, there's three things you have to be able to affirmatively answer. Number one, is the patient gonna get better? So you have to have outcomes. Number two, the physicians have to be willing to um, prescribe it. It, it. They're the gatekeepers. If physicians don't believe in something and you may have the greatest thing to slice bread in your mind, the patients are never gonna receive it. You will never uh, achieve market adoption. And then the third piece is getting insurance companies to pay for it. I mean, 95% of healthcare is still uh, covered through insurance. Self-pay is a relatively small part of the market. And insurance companies are very challenging. Um, and you will always hear horror stories in terms of from entrepreneurs, in terms of trying to get approval uh, and all those things. We had approval the first month we were in the market. Uh, and normally it takes five to seven years. And part of that is I think, the value proposition that we were bringing, uh, the market, you know, the product, the market to product fit, as well as uh, hopefully just uh, having learned how to articulate the value proposition to an insurance company. You have to be able to show plausibility um, around how you're going to help them achieve their goals. And one of their goals is cost containment. So you have to be able to show them that. Uh, this is going to lead to better outcomes for the patient, which will lead to lower costs for them. That's amazing. I, you know, I hear from entrepreneurs, that's always a struggle is, is, you know, one getting obviously the approval, but then getting, you know, getting it paid for is, is as you know, is always such a, uh, can be an arduous process. I'm curious from, you hit on something really important where I think is, which some people may miss initially is that the, if the physicians don't like it, they're not going to use it. I can just, you know, I, I see that, you know, from different physicians I work with where if there's a product they don't like, they, they just don't use it. And so I'm curious how, what role have, you know, physician advisors, you know, we have a lot of physicians listening, you know, what kind of role have they played in, in kind of helping you develop this? And, and I guess what has been some of the feedback you've, you've received from, from physicians using the product? Yeah, so let me answer your, your your question as you asked it, but but it's uh, uh, let me share sort of a going, going off on a tangent a little bit because that was one of the biggest crises we faced as a company. We launched in June of 2019, and we were um, cruising along quite nicely uh, through the first quarter of 2020, and then that uh, the whole pandemic thing hit. And to your point, you know, with doctors being the or physicians being the gatekeepers. Um, you have to uh, get their buy-in. The problem is that that in, entails conventionally that you had to go do a demo, you know, sort of a dog and pony show, if you will, get the physicians comfortable. 
but every hospital, every clinic was shut down in, in Q2 all of a sudden. Uh, and so for us, with a new with a with a product that requires demonstration to physicians, is like now what do we do? Because the playbook, the, the conventional playbook, was thrown out the window. So we uh, we scrambled and we did the best we could, and we uh, immediately began a digital outreach program. Uh, really from not doing it to uh, being pretty effective at it from beginning, you know, that was a total of 30 days. And we were then uh, able to do um, uh, webinars as well as smaller group demos, everything done digitally vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Zoom or similar video calls. Um, uh, because, you know, part of just in the same way that it was difficult to uh, get in front of physicians, we also needed to get in front of insurance company adjusters and people who were going to um, potentially say yes or no for paying for the product. And so um, we couldn't access them either because their offices were also closed or they're now working remotely. They're no longer going to the work environment that they did. So we started doing webinars and on our pro program. And in the course of 2020, I think we had 14,000 nurse case managers or adjusters uh, attend our webinars. It was very, very cool uh, or great from our perspective. I think that the market was very kind to us. Word spread where people started to talk to other adjusters. Hey, you know, this company's putting on webinars, Harvard MedTech. Uh, you should actually attend this because what they're doing is very interesting. So we, we, what was, you know, for all intents and purposes, almost a death blow with the uh, pandemic. I mean, we were fortunately able to pivot, scramble and figure out a way uh, to, to get past that. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, as, as you know, a lot of, a lot of companies really struggled during that time. So it, it sounds like you weathered the storm very successfully, which, uh, you know, kudos to you and your, your team. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and then the irony is that, you know, as much as uh, the pandemic was initially a really tough thing, it's now helped us tremendously uh, because one of the things that um, uh, I think we're very, very good at, and, you know, and I would say best in class is behavioral health interventions. And the pandemic really raised the awareness of behavioral health and how it's a such a critical part in terms of, of uh, people's uh, ability to function. And so whereas behavioral health um, uh, had a certain level of importance or recognition in 2017 or 2018, today it's much higher. The other thing that what the pandemic did is that as a result of closures, everyone got a lot more comfortable with telehealth or remote patient uh, treatment. And, and we're treating patients in their home, uh, which is, I think, the ideal environment. Um, but, you know, in, in one of my previous companies, you know, we came out with the first true ambulatory infusion device, which helped create the uh, home infusion industry as we think of it today. And that lesson taught me that when we moved home care or home infusion into the patient's home, compliance went up, is a better experience for the patients, the cost setting is lower. So, so we uh, apply that same learning, if you will, from that experience to create a model here where we could do that. And the nice part about the pandemic, if you want to do it that way, is that everyone sort of recognized that, hey, this is actually a really uh, a great way of treating patients. That's awesome. One thing I'm wondering was, did you have any skepticism from, you know, whether it be clinicians, you know, healthcare systems or clinics, and I guess what, you know, cause this is, so, you know, fairly disruptive what you're doing here. And so I'm curious, you know, and kind of paving a, a new, like you said, kind of a new avenue for a lot of, you know, a lot of these patients kind of got all lumped into one category and now you're providing 
you know, more tailored solutions, um, you know, and, and then also maybe people that just weren't as familiar with using VR in their practice, maybe, you know, what any kind of pushback you got or skepticism and how you overcame that. Uh, great question, Maxwell. Uh, a ton of of uh, pushback. Um, you know, a lot of times <clears throat> I felt that people were looking at me like I had three heads. It's like, you know, who is this crazy uh, person? But on the other hand, as an entrepreneur, having been through this before, I'm used to that. I mean, that's sort of the initial thing. There's a big difference between bringing to market an evolutionary product versus a revolutionary product. If it's an evolutionary product, like let's say a better stent uh, or a better wheelchair, the marketplace has already uh, recognized that, okay, this is something of value. And then all you're saying is that, hey, uh, you're already buying this. Let me give you a different version of, of that. If you're bringing a revolutionary product to the marketplace, um, it's always very threatening and discombobulating to the existing systems and process that are in place. So we were talking about the infusion pump company, you know, when I was bringing that to market, you heard all sorts of pushback. Oh, you can't do an infusion at home. What happens if the job, what happens if the dog eats the infusion pump? I mean, it's all these ridiculous scenarios in terms of on stuff. And so it took a while for people to get comfortable. Likewise, in this thing, it was like, you know, you went to certain cities in California, like San Francisco. Yeah, everyone knows VR. If you go to Mobile, Alabama, people have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, and, and, and so we were bringing a brand new uh, uh, modality to market, and we were really emphasizing the behavioral health aspect from the program. So it took a, it took a, a period of time you know, uh, for people to um, get comfortable with it. And um, now uh, we're getting much faster adoption from new physicians and new insurance companies. But the initial cycle, to your point, in 2019 and 2020, it was very missionary in nature, just getting people to wrap their head around. You know, because if you think about how healthcare is uh, delivered in our country, um, you know, there's sort of basic concepts. You know, you give people pills, uh, you do surgeries, and um, and so on. And and what we were saying is that look, you know, those are all great modalities, but here's a more holistic way where we can achieve the same or better results without doing either one of those two things. And so for a lot of the, a lot of, uh, uh, the folks in healthcare, it was, it was in a way uh, a threatening um, prop, uh, value proposition. Uh, fortunately, we were able to uh, articulate and, and we got, and, and the first group who really got behind it were, were physicians uh, for different reasons. And, you know, and part of that is as a company, you know, uh, bringing a new product to market, you know, I've found that you have to be very strategic in in, in your go-to-market strategy. Uh, I think that one of the most important issues for how successful a company will be is their go-to-market strategy, and it's, and it's oftentimes overlooked. People uh, focus a lot on product or a lot of things, and I'm not saying those things are not important, but go-to-market is the most critical thing. And so part of it was we were very thoughtful in terms of seeking out positions uh, who we thought would be more progressive uh, and who would be more open-minded and getting them to be the early adopters. And, you know, and today we have great KOLs. I mean, you know, as an example, in, in you know, one application of our product is, is prescribed to patients for pre and post uh, pain management and behavioral health mitigation by spine surgeons as they're doing, you know, very um, um, significant surgery. And then we have all of the, uh, the you know, KOLs that you would want, um, you know, uh, Matt McGurr, Alex Vaccaro, uh, Nick Theodore, you know, who are all affiliated with the company and supportive. But 
Uh, that wasn't the case back in 2019. And so, you know, we got here, but it was a long road and it was very thoughtful and strategic in terms of how we would get here. That's really interesting. Yeah, those are some those are some big names. I, I had Dr. Vaccaro on my podcast previously, and uh, oh, he's def- yeah, he's definitely a very very innovative guy. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, no, that's uh, I think you know it, again, you know, harping on this point, getting the end user to buy in and 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 uh, you know push for it and be a champion of it. I think that sounds like you know something you did very very successfully, which is which is pretty cool. I'm curious, you know, from the what what have been some of the patient like feedback? You know what would have been some of the you know long term benefits you've seen? You know both you know in your studies and then just even from you know stories you hear from end users of it. That is the most rewarding part of my job, uh, hearing from patients, um, and I do it systematically, where I will uh, talk to two of our patients every month, and I want to hear directly from them. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? It's it's my fountain of truth. And so by ta- hearing directly from the patients, that gives me a really good insight into uh, what's being effective and what's not. But in addition to that, um, I read the notes, clinical notes uh, from these weekly sessions. And so whether it's through those calls or whether it's through uh, patient stuff, as well as a lot, you know, it's amazing. We have patients who go out of their way to try to say, thank you so much for the uh, impact your program has had on on my life. Um, And so so it's it's extremely rewarding. um, And and, uh, patients are very vocal about the impact that it's had for them because a lot of them have been suffering for a significant period of time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's... Chronic pain is a very challenging uh, issue. The um, other thing in terms of of patient uh, uh, feedback is uh, that you see it in terms of statistics, like they're returning back to work or they're now socializing again, or they're going back to um, taking walks. And and so it's really whether it's hearing about it, reading about it, or uh, or, or drawing inferences based on the on the um, progress that patients are making, you know, it's just it's it's really exciting what we're doing. I I, I do want to say though, look, it's not a silver bullet that's going to work for every patient. It seems to be effective in for about seventy percent of the patients we put on the program. Hopefully, over time, we will uh, increase that effectiveness. But a big part of that is, um, uh, in some cases, it's not going to help the patient. In some cases, perhaps the patient doesn't want to lean in because we do have to have a patient cooperate and um, you know do the behavioral health therapy calls, do all the stuff, take ownership of it. But if we have a patient who wants to do that, it's it's uh, it's it's effective in a very large percentage of the population. That's really cool. Really, really, uh, truly innovative. It's it's. It's great. I, the other thing I wanted to ask about is, which you know all too well as a serial entrepreneur, is the fundraising aspect. And I guess, uh, you know, what, where are you guys at with, I guess, what kind of fundraising have you guys done? And, you know, is that something you're continuing to do or or uh, are you kind of holding still at this point on that on that front? Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it's interesting. To your point, I've been through the cycle. I mean, I've, 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 I've raised money from uh, angel investors. I've raised money see, as a part of a Series A from VCs. I've raised a Series B from growth equity investors. I've raised from private equity. I took a company public on NASDAQ. Um, 
we had a very nice run. Uh, we raised money, obviously, in addition to the initial uh, through secondaries. So, I, I, you know, if you if you don't like raising money, you should not be an entrepreneur because it's very much a part of the job description. On this particular company, I, you know, I funded it myself uh, until we were able to make sure that the uh, dog was going to eat the dog food. Was uh, were patients going to benefit? Was insurance going to cover it? Would doctors prescribe? Um, just because I had the luxury of being able to do that. Um, then after that, um, uh, we did our seed round, and our seed round has been a it's been a collection of people who've known me for a very long period of time. You know, some of them were investors in previous companies, or you know, they're all you know, healthcare folks, whether they're entrepreneurs or executives, of, you know, who understand the space. And we've also had a couple of smaller funds um, that uh, uh, VC funds have invested. We've been looking at doing a Series A, and and uh, you know we intend to do it, but we uh, wanted to be able to do it on our own terms. And by that, it means finding the right partner because um, it's not just money from anybody. Picking your partners from an investment perspective as an entrepreneur is really critical because not all investors are the same. And it's really a partnership. It's you know, not to be overly dramatic, but it's kind of like getting married. I mean, you're tied at the hip with this and with 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 this institution or, or or person for a long period of time, as well as you know, in terms of all the things as an entrepreneur, you want to get the right uh, condition terms and and all those sort of things. So, we're looking at um, um, we will go out and do a Series A. I mean, in, practically, we really be more the equivalent of a, a Series B or C at this point. Well, we will go out and raise our first institutional round probably later this year. And, um, uh, but, but we've had the luxury of where we have uh, been able to finance the company uh, internally and really off of, uh, our, off of the seed round uh, uh, to date. And what that has also allowed us to do is move very, very quickly. Um, and as an entrepreneur, for me, um, having learned so many lessons over time, um, I can get the same value uh, through an advisory board. And we do have a very uh, extensive advisory board, both medical advisory board and industry advisory board. So in terms of, of help, I got that. In terms of the money, we were able to, to people were kind to us. They invested um, uh, based on my track record and the value proposition of the company. And, and so we will go to, go to an institutional round um, uh, soon here, but we want to do it where we're thoughtful and we pick the right partner. Very cool. Very cool. I, you Something you touched on there I want to ask you about, was, especially given your extensive experience, is, is advisory boards. And so, you know, we have a lot of physicians that listen. I guess, what what do you look for when you're putting together an advisory board? And I guess from the physician standpoint, I guess where if, if they wanted to get involved, like beyond an advisory board or a strategic advisory or a startup, I guess, where what would be the best way for them to like provide value if, if in that way? Yeah, so um, I, 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 do you mean that Maxwell in terms of generally or specific to Harvard MedTech? I guess either or. I guess you know, and specifically in your company, what did you look? You know, when you were building Harvard MedTech, what what kind of advisors were you looking for? And I guess where have they provided the biggest value uh, for you? Yeah, so um, let's take our medical advisory board as an example. Um, and what I was looking for is first of all the medical advisory board should have constituents that represent the totality of the ecosystem. So for example, I have two, uh, two of the members are the chief medical officer of large insurance companies. 
Uh, one is the chief medical officer of the Hartford, the other one, the chief medical officer of Chesapeake Insurance, because uh, we're in healthcare and we want to get their perspective. Um, likewise, we have, for example, uh, Dr. Uh, Nick Theodore, who is head of neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins, uh, is also on the board. So you have an academic uh, uh, thought leader who is you know, at the top of his profession and can add, uh, give us a lot of insights there. Uh, we also have an, a, a physician who's an extraordinarily successful um, uh, orthopedic surgeon who runs a practice in um, Las Vegas. Uh, and uh, because some of our, our partners are going to be uh, smaller practices, one to 20 uh, physicians. And so I want to get their perspective in terms of are we designing uh, our programs to be great partners for them? So first of all, you want to have a lot of different data, uh, different uh, uh, perspectives. Uh, so you get a 360 degree advice. The second thing is that you really want to have people who have high EQ, uh, where they can get along, where they can collaborate, where they're, you know, don't have an insecurity complex, where every conversation is a IQ testosterone uh, test, where they have to show you how smart they are. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, so it's really a combination of folks who are very smart, who have a diversity of opinions, but who are uh, who have a very high IQ so that they can collaborate with the other board members as well as with management. And it's a positive experience for everybody. For physicians who want to join advisory boards, um, you know, I, I think I would, I would say that uh, pick and choose your spots because you're going to commit time. The one thing in life that is absolutely limited is time. You can't buy more of it. You can't make more of it. And uh, if you're doing something, you're not doing something else. So really make sure that you believe in the mission of the company, you believe in the product, um, uh, you have good chemistry with a management team, uh, that you're aligned with them in terms of what they're, what they're expecting the role to be. But you know, at the end of the day, it's gotta be something you're really interested in, right? It can't just be something where you're checking the box because that only if you really uh, uh, are, are interested in something, are you gonna have passion? Passion, I'm, I'm a big believer of passion in business. That's what drives people to do extraordinary things. That's what drives people to really stretch and reach. And so um, for, for the, uh, from the physician's perspective, like I say, just be very thoughtful and choosy in terms of which assignments you take. Don't hesitate to ask a lot of the hard questions up front uh, when you're talking to the entrepreneur. I think that's that's excellent advice. I mean, all of us only have 24 hours in the day, no matter who you are. And I think for most physicians, you know, unless they're, I guess, doing advising full time, this is going to go on top of their practice. And this is, you know, I think you make a critical point, you know, one, it's taking up time. And then two, you got to be very passionate about it. It's got to be something that you're invested in, not just, you know, either financially, um, but also like something you want, like a change you want to see in the world. I think that's, yeah. that's critical. And this then I... And I think you made another great point, you know, like you said, you have Dr. You know Theodore from Johns Hopkins, big academic thought leader, but I think also bringing in, you know, people from more of the community practice, because while it's important to have the academic thought leaders and, and you know, there's a reason they're at these big institutions, the ma many of the users out there, I think people may forget are, are community hospital. I mean, most of, most of, you know, most patients are treated either in, you know, outpatient clinics or community hospitals, community ERs. And so I think that's that's a great point you made about getting their perspective as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, and for a lot of these smaller practices that are out there, um, you know, they're facing a lot of financial pressures today. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they have to think about the business along with the clinical aspects of it. And unless we hear from them in terms of how our program is helping them be better, or more optimal, uh, more optimal in, in whatever way that they want to be, uh, we can't be good partners. And, you know, and, and so um, uh, just having that perspective uh, allows me to be a better partner to the, you know, hundreds of, of practices who are a part of our, our network of, of partners uh, on the prescribing side. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Shane, as, as we close out here, I just want to ask you, uh, you know, what, what are kind of your goals in the next year? So, you know, you said you're, you're thinking about raised, obviously doing a, a big fundraise, but I guess uh, on, aside from that, any other like big milestones you're hoping to hit in the next year or so? I think that uh, for us, uh, we're past uh, the uh, phase two for the company uh, in, in terms of uh you know, there, there's no real existential threats at this point. The, the, you know, the product is getting paid for, physicians like it, patients get benefits from it. So we're really now in a scaling mode. And so a lot of the stuff is um, a really uh, in, uh, doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes in terms of enterprise systems and clinical systems that uh, can scale with us as we grow. So it's really at this point, just execution. It's just uh, continuing our, at our footprint, uh, getting more practices on board, uh, getting more um, insurers on board. It's just rinse and repeat doing what we, what we have been doing. So it's in a way it's uh, uh, easier than the last couple of years have been, but in another way, it's actually, it's, it's just as hard because execution, I mean, like I, I've taken companies in the past from, you know, a million or $2 million to, you know, 90 to hundred million in three years in, in, or four years in terms of a run rate. That is not an easy exercise and you have to respect the process. And so I'm, you know, by all means, I'm fully aware of the journey and the challenges we have ahead of us. But what I'm saying is that it's it's all it's all manageable, and so I, I don't lose sleep over will we be you know will we survive as a company or will we exist? We, I think we're beyond that. But uh, do we optimize the opportunity or not? That's what that's what uh, keeps me awake at night. Awesome, awesome. Well, my last thing I, I ask every guest is uh, when you're not building medtech companies, what what's your passions outside of work? What, how do you find that balance if there is one? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big believer more so than I was earlier in my life. I mean, I, you know, in, in terms of uh, sleeping at the office and, you know, 24, I mean, I've done all that stuff. And, and I, I don't necessarily think that that makes you a better entrepreneur. Um, you know, I wish I'd got that wisdom a lot earlier, but, <laughs> but, but, but so in terms of, I mean, it, 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 you have to work incredibly hard. I mean, I, I work uh, 12 to 14 hour days, but I wake up every morning at four o'clock and I exercise and go for a hike or for a walk for two hours. And for me, that's really important. And, and so my own personal health is another important issue for me. The other thing, you know, in terms of, of, of as you get older in life, I want to you know, continue to invest more in my personal relationships with friends uh, and just, just spending time with, with people who I like or care about and it uh, really brings a lot of value to me. Um, then in terms of when I did, if I did have some spare time, uh, which is a precious commodity, I guess the answer to that one would be a, a painting, watercolor painting. Uh, it calms, it brings me uh, calmness. 
and it's uh, a way when I'm in when I'm doing that I'm not thinking about anything else so it really helps with the uh, along with the uh, uh, hiking and walking it really allows me to practice mindfulness very interesting yeah that's you know exercise obviously very important and then having creative outlets too that's that's awesome well Shane I really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us the last thing is I guess where can people find out more about Harvard MedTech and and connect with you if they if they want to reach out yeah, so I would encourage people to um, please go to our website, uh, uh, www. Uh, you know, Harvard, like spelled like the university, medtech, M-E-D-T-E-C-H dot com, and there uh, on the website there's a way, a place that you, if you if you click for positions, you can ask us to contact you. Um, if someone wants to talk to me personally, they can say that just on the notes. But we would love to uh, hear from physicians who are interested in working with us in our product or, you know, just anyone who's interested in helping the HMT mission. Um, and uh, so, so please uh, go on our website, go uh, and let us know and we'll reach back out and, and uh, connect with you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Shane, you're working on some incredibly innovative and impactful uh, technology. So I, I commend you and your colleagues. And again, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maxwell. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.